Hi, and welcome to Things of Interest. I'm Sophia Friends. And I'm Serena Chen. And this episode is going to be on one of Serena's expertise topics. We're talking about oh, no. cryptography. <laughs> How do computers encode things? Why does your bank account keep the money in it instead of it all falling out? <laughs> what happens when you're hacked? Who knows? I certainly don't. And so this entire episode will be asking Serena weird questions about cryptography, some of which may not be relevant at all to the field of cryptography. Now let's just have fun. So basically, we've sort of touched on this before in other episodes, but never really done a deep dive into it. And essentially everything I know about like how computers hide data is, firstly, it is something to do with prime numbers. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And secondly, use a word called hashing to refer to encoding things in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Because I've seen that word used on Twitter in that sense, and I use context clues. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where the end of my knowledge is. Uh But Serena has a lot of knowledge about security and cryptography and has given a bunch of talks about this, so no pressure. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) But, yeah, you're basically an expert. To start with something kind of small, do you want to start telling us about substitution ciphers and what they do and why they matter? Yes. Okay. The goal of cryptography is to basically send secret messages. And that sounds like real, like, ooh espionage spies but it's basically saying hey i want to send someone a message and i want to let's say i want to send you a message and i want to make sure that you are the only one who reads that message because i sent it to you and i didn't send it to anyone else right makes sense um so the whole field of cryptography is basically how do we how do we make this happen essentially and how do we make this happen on the internet how do we make this happen in some other cases So throughout history, people have been sending each other messages. And throughout history, people have been eavesdropping on each other's messages. Hmm. Where to start? The the simplest kind of... um... The simplest place is a really good start. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's start from the simplest place. um, With a thing called a Caesar cipher. Which I assume was invented back in Caesar's time. Due to its name, but... um, I am no historian, so don't quote me on that. A Caesar cipher is a thing called a substitution cipher. It's where you line up the whole alphabet, in our case A to Z, and you rotate everything by a number. So the most common one is called ROT13, which is you rotate the alphabet by 13 places. So what will happen is that A will become an N, B will become an O, and you know what I mean, like everything gets kind of shifted by how many spaces. That's a that's a really simple cipher. So let's say I want to send a message to you, and before I send this message to you, we meet up beforehand, and we agree on a cipher called, I don't know, rot. Mm, what's the number? 20. Mm-hmm. And we'll agree on that beforehand. Go away, and then I can start sending you um, messages encoded by moving the alphabet, moving each letter by 20 places. And what I'll end up sending you is what looks like gibberish, right? And because you and I agreed that we're going to move the alphabet 20 places, all you have to do is move each letter 20 places back. And then you get my message. And that's how I send a message to you without um, someone else, you know, reading it. The downside of substitution ciphers, and substitution ciphers are, are really common. One that I really enjoy is a cipher called the pig pen cipher which is basically just a whole bunch of like lines and dots 
And it, it looks like alien writing, basically. And on first glance, it just it looks like another language. But all it is is a simple substitution. Every image means a letter, and you just substitute the image for the letter, and you get the message. I never read Artemis Fowl. Did you read Artemis Fowl as a kid growing I up? I did read Artemis Fowl. Okay. And they have the um, the fairy language. Has, yes. Is kind of like that? Is that? Yeah. yeah. So I Because it's read... a one-to-one. Yeah. So a substitution cipher is always a one-to-one. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That's the word. That's what substitution means. Sorry. <laughs> so if, if you've ever read Artemis Fowl, the only thing I know about it is that it's got this like made-up language that's basically just a substitution cipher. And that's, I don't know, good enough if you're passing around schoolyard notes, starting to learn about cryptography. Cute. But it's also really easily broken. So if someone, say Eve, the eavesdropper, good name, um, let's say Eve gets intercepts your message. Now, because Eve didn't meet up with us beforehand to decide how many places to move the alphabet, she can't decipher it straight away. But... Eve is a smart cookie, and what she can do is she can start counting the frequency of each letter. English has a really predictable um, frequency pattern in that, and off the top of my head I could be wrong, E is the most common letter, followed by T, um, followed by A, followed by O, followed by N, followed by I, followed by R. There's different frequency distributions, but that's roughly the most frequent, frequently used letters in the English language. So, if um, Eve can count up all the different letters and how how often they appear in the gibberish-looking text, she can basically look at the most common letter and say, let's assume that's E, and try and decrypt the rest of the message by assuming that that letter is E. You might not get it right the first time, but if that doesn't work, you can assume that that letter is T, and so on and so forth. I've done this before. Um, on like code cracking puzzle kind of things and it works like you only really need to try the first three letters usually and it works the longer the message the less you have to try and so this is a cipher that's really easily broken even though we met up beforehand and we decided on how we were gonna encode things um, Eve has really easily just broken our cipher and has seen the secret message so we're going to meet up again and we're going to get a little bit craftier because we don't want her to be able to just count letters and figure it out, right? So the way that we can do this is we can use this thing called a, a key-based cipher or um, I think they also call it like polyalphabetic, which is a word I don't like. <laughs> the most common kind of key-based cipher is a French word that I can't pronounce. <laughs> I think it's called like Vignere or Vignere. It's you don't need to know the the name. <laughs> it's a cipher that uses a key. And basically what's going to happen is that we're going to meet up beforehand again and we're going to come up with a better cipher to to send our secret messages to each other. So what we can do is we can agree on a key which can be it's usually just a word. Let's say the word is elephant. We agree that elephant is the key. And what we can do is we can go away. Um, I can write my message again. And under my message, I can write the word elephant, 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 just repeated. And that keyword is going to tell me how many spaces to rotate that letter. 
let's say elephant and E would correspond to uh, five in the alphabet. So for the first letter of my message, I'm going to rotate that letter by five spaces. And then for the next letter, um, I'm going to rotate that by, I don't know, L is like around about 10, who knows. And so instead of rotating all of the letters by the same number of spaces in the alphabet, I'm going to rotate each letter by a different space depending on our secret keyword. Now that makes eavesdrop a lot harder because she can't just count up the letters anymore. She can't just do frequency analysis because all of the letters are substituted by a different spacing, um, which is a little bit better. It means that she'll have a harder time, but as it turns out, you can still break that. I mean, I wouldn't say it's easy, but like it's doable and it's doable with a pen and paper. You don't need like a computer or anything. Mm -hmm. This is kind of like the ciphers that I told you about, uh, like the old school ciphers. Um, and there, there are a class of ciphers. I think they're called like symmetrical or symmetric mm -hmm. key cryptography, which is when we meet up beforehand and we agree on some kind of shared secret, like the key elephant or um, the fact that we're going to rotate the alphabet by 20 spaces. And the downside to this is that for us to be able to communicate secretly with each other, we have to meet up beforehand. Um, which is cool, because, you know, you and I know each other and we can do that. But what if I wanted to communicate secretly to a person I've never met before on the internet? That becomes um, a bit tricky. I don't want to meet someone random on the internet and in real life just to talk to them securely later on. So we need a thing called um, public key cryptography, which is okay. where we need to kind of somehow establish a secret that's only shared between us that no one else knows, but we have to do this in public. Okay. And that's, yes. That sounds difficult. Yes. Yes, it does. And this is where it, it gets quite um, tricky, but it also is really clever. A lot of the cryptography that we use today is based on this thing called the Diffie-Hellman Exchange, which is a name that, don't worry about it, you don't really need to know it. Um, the idea is that I have my own secret, and only I need to know it, and you've got your own secret key, and only you need to know it, and with our two keys we can send each other a secret message without having to tell anyone else what the secret key is. And I'll just start with an analogy, because this is when it starts getting a bit mathsy, which I think can be, like, even I find it difficult, and I technically studied this. Let's say I'm sending you um, these secret messages over the mail, just normal snail mail, writing it down, sending it to you. And I've been doing these like fancy substitution ciphers to send you messages. But let's say in a new world, like I don't know you in real life. And we, you know, I live in Wellington, you live in Melbourne, um, expensive to get a flight. So we can't really meet up in real life and like agree on a key before we then, you know, go back and send messages. So, but I want to send you a secret message. I want to send you a message that's only for you and not for anyone else. Mm -hmm. But we can't meet up beforehand. So how do we do that? Well, there's a way we can do it. What if I put my message inside a box, and I lock the box, and I have a key? So I have a key, 
and I can undo the lock, cool, um, and you can't undo this lock. But I lock the box, and I send you the locked box. When you get the locked box, you can't open it, because you don't have my key, right? But what you can do is you can put your own lock on the box and lock the box. Now there's two locks on the box. Now you send that locked box back to me. Okay, I can't open it, but I mean, I know the message, so it doesn't really matter. But what I can do is I can take off my own lock and leave your lock on the box. The box is still locked. It's been locked all this time. The whole time. The whole yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. So I send it back to you, you can unlock the box, and you can read my secret message. Huh. During none of this process have I given anyone my key, and you haven't given anyone your key either. We still have our secret keys that's only for ourselves. But I've sent you a secret message. That's really cool. It's really cool, yeah. Is that, is that just what computers do? Is that the public key? Kind of, yes. Pretty much. That's the closest analogy I've found so far. What computers do is kind of like that, but we do it to establish a key. Yeah, I guess the computer analogy is if like we were both sending each other locked boxes. So I did that locked box thing. I send one message to you and then you do the same thing to me. And so I have my message that I sent to you and your message that you sent to me and you've got both pieces as well. And at the end of it, we combine the two messages that were inside the two locked boxes. And that becomes our shared secret. That becomes kind of the key in the substitution cipher that we were talking about before, like the word elephant. So we combine the two and that becomes the key that we use to encrypt everything else. And how we encrypt everything else is pretty straightforward from then on. It's just establishing the key, the shared key, that's the hard part. Okay. Yeah. So that is public key cryptography. It's a lot simpler when you say it like that. Like, yeah. Okay. All right. Then why, mm, mm-hmm. why are apps like Signal better than apps like Facebook Messenger mm. from a data security perspective? Right. Apps like Signal have this thing called end-to-end encryption. So when I talk to a website like Facebook, my um, data that gets sent to Facebook and back, it's encrypted. But the thing is that that's encrypted only between me and Facebook. When it gets to Facebook, it gets decrypted and Facebook can see what I'm sending it. And it has to see what I'm sending it, right? Like, I need to post a comment to Facebook. So Facebook needs to know what co- that comment is. So that makes sense. But in messaging apps where there's a third party like Facebook in between you and me, that's less good. Because when I send you a message through Facebook Messenger, I want that message to go to you. I don't necessarily want an employee at Facebook being able to read it. Okay. My connection between me and Facebook is encrypted. So Eve, this random third person, can't see what I'm sending to Facebook. And the encryption from Facebook to you is also encrypted. So Eve can't see what Facebook and you are talking about. Um, But I'm using Facebook to talk to you. So Facebook is like this middleman, right? And when I use Facebook Messenger... I send my messages to Facebook first, and then Facebook passes it on to you, which is kind of not what I want. Like, I want to talk to you. I don't want Facebook knowing what we're talking about. Yeah, it's... Yeah, so end-to-end encryption, like Signal, is basically making sure that it's encrypted all the way through. So Signal will have some servers, and I will pass on my message to you through Signal. But Signal is not able to decrypt messages. 
Like, Signal cannot read what we're saying to each other. And Signal, all Signal does is just passes on the encrypted message to you, and then you do the decryption. So that's what they mean by end-to-end encryption, is that the encryption happens at my end and gets decrypted at your end, and there's no, like, decryption, re-encryption in between. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So that's why apps like Signal are usually better for privacy, because it's like, you know, only I can see it and only you can see it, and Facebook or, like, a third party can't see it. When do prime numbers come into it? Okay, um, if we want to start talking about prime numbers... I always want to start talking about prime numbers. (laughs) Prime numbers are really cool. It is so hot, I'm sweating like a pig. Okay, at the start of this episode, you mentioned hashing. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And hashing is a word that gets thrown around a lot in cryptography. And what a hash is, is basically a a one-way function. And what that means is that you feed it a string of letters or numbers or both or whatever, um, and it will give you a different string of letters and numbers and whatever. It's easy to, like, it's easy to hash stuff. It's easy to feed um, A in and get B out. But if I have B, if I have an already hashed thing, it's really, really hard, really hard for computers to undo that function. So if got, I've got a message and I put it through a hashing function, then it should be really easy for that like encryption, you could think of it, to happen, and really hard for the decryption part to happen. And that's really important because before I was talking about putting locks on things to establish a shared secret, these locks are actually, um, because, you know, in reality on the internet, we can't put a physical lock on anything. The only thing we can do is use these things called um, one-way functions or hashing. Um, They're not all great. Um, There's some that can be really easily broken, but like the ones that we're using now should be pretty good. The way that we're putting these metaphorical locks on when we communicate over the internet is um, feeding things through a one-way function. And that's how I put the lock on. It's really easy for me to put the lock on and easy for me to take it off because I have some kind of key. Um, But it's really hard for anyone else to try and break this lock unless they have like bajillion computers and a a lot of time. So that's that's what's acting as the lock in this situation here. And prime numbers comes into it because it's a trick of math, really. When you take a number and you... Ugh, how do I say this without saying math words? How mathsy do you want to get is my oh. question for you. Hmm. hmm. We can get pretty mathsy. Yeah? Yeah, we can get pretty mathsy. Okay. I'm also very aware that this is like an audio-only media... And, um... You want to draw diagrams? <laughs> yeah, it might be suited for more diagrams. What I can say is that when you do a thing where it's like you take A to the power of B mod a prime number, um, yeah. and this mod word just means that you're wrapping the number line around itself. So 7 mod 6 equals 1. Um, 6 mod 6 equals 0. 3 mod 6 equals 3. It's a remainder in long division. It's a remainder, yes. But a better way to think about it is 
the time. If it's 11 o'clock in the morning and you want to wait three hours, what time will it be? One. Uh, two? No, yeah, sorry. It's very hot where we both are. <laughs> yeah, sorry, we're in like, um... <laughs> we're in a heat wave. Yeah, <laughs> it's not fun. And no one's brains work. No anymore. one's brain is working. Um, but you you know what I mean. Like you know, it's eleven, and you add three hours, and you come back to to I don't know two p.m. Oh yeah, so like by wrapping it around itself. Yeah, yeah. 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 So gotcha. it just keeps wrapping around itself. There's this kind of mathematical quirk in that when you take a number and you take it to the somethingth power, and then you modulo that by a prime number. So when I say modulo, it it's like if I take a number and I modulo it by 12, then I'm telling you the time. So if, yeah. it's, if it's 1,400 hours um, and I modulo it by 12, then it's 2 p.m. Doing that is really easy to work out. But if you've got, like, the prime number and you've got the base number and you've got the modulo kind of output number and you want to find the exponent, that becomes incredibly hard really really hard and it's an mp problem which is something that we've talked about before it's a non-polynomial time problem and it's really hard for computers to find out what the exponent the power of that equation is okay so because it's really hard then we can just put our our shared secret like that can be our lock because okay com- when yeah. you say really mm-hmm. hard mm-hmm. Like, is that length of time? Is that computing power? Like, what are we... Both. Both. Okay. Mm. Okay. So, um... Why don't mm-hmm. hackers just have more computers? Like, surely they do. They do, yes. And sometimes um, they will try and brute force with a lot of computers. It depends on how well-funded the hackers are. But when I say that it's really hard, I mean, like longer than the heat death of the universe yeah (laughs) like longer than the lifetime of the universe kind of hard it is unfathomably hard to undo this kind of um this kind of equation which makes it it makes it really nice for cryptography because it means that i can encode something really really easily and i can decode it easily if i have the key but without the key it is incredibly hard for anyone else to decode it and that's how i can send you secret messages over the internet what happens when there are like leaks like this is kind of two questions yeah the australian government has had like data leaks previously but also stuff like when a bunch of passwords and shit gets published online. Like, Adobe had that big thing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. relatively recently where a whole heap of usernames and passwords were just mm. available. Like, a hacker group had got it, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, how, how did that happen? Was that just, like, brute-forcing things, or was there, like, a weakness somewhere? Mm. So those are usually database dumps. So when I sign up for an account somewhere, uh, say, Adobe... Um, you do the thing where you make a username and password. Now, they have to store that username and password somewhere. Because if they don't know what your password is, then you can't say, this is my password, let me in. So, you know, that makes sense. They need they need to know what your password is. Now, the problem is, um, when they store that password, because they have to know what your password is, they become a target uh, for hackers. 
like if I'm a hacker and I wanted to know your password, I could attack Adobe and their databases rather than your computer because they know your password. And they would probably rather attack like Adobe and their databases because there's more information there than just one person's password. Yes. So it makes more sense to attack big companies than just your computer. Yeah, yeah. And this is why you you don't reuse passwords because the only reason why they want to attack companies is that people reuse passwords all the time. So if they can get a password dump of hundreds and thousands of accounts, all they have to do is try that username and password combo on every single other website and probably get in. And they can probably get your Facebook account off of that. They can probably get your Google account off of that. So that's why it's really important for us to use different passwords for every website that we go on. Okay. And there's like there's some ways that um, that companies can mitigate and secure the passwords. The key rule here for any company is to never store passwords in plain text. So if my password is ABC123 and I give it to Adobe, they should not ever store the letters ABC123. What they'll do is they'll hash it. They'll hash it themselves. And usually with a thing called a salt. Yeah, so a salt means that mm-hmm. if you have two passwords that, this, that are the same, the hash isn't the same. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I learned that recently. <laughs> nice. That's some that's some high-level crypto stuff. Yeah, so the salt is to basically protect these companies from dictionary attacks. So let's say, I mean, everyone knows that the word password is like one of the most common passwords. So a way that I could tell, you know, out of this database of hash passwords that someone's got the word password as the password is that I just hash the word password myself. And then I can compare the gibberish that comes out to the gibberish in the database. That's why they add salts. And so people can't just, you know, hash it themselves. But even so, these passwords can get leaked. And usually the the hashing and the salting that happens, companies are not always on the ball with these kinds of things. So like the bigger companies, like the Googles and the Facebooks, they will treat their the database of passwords very well and it'll be very secure. Um, but for smaller companies who might not have the expertise, who might not have um, the resource or the knowledge to do these things, uh, there's been a lot of cases in the past where passwords have been leaked and they've just been stored in plain text or they've been stored hash but not salted. Okay. And that's a really easy way to just be like, oh, well, there's everyone's passwords. Boom. What are, like, beyond sort of hashing and salting and public key encryption? Like, what are the next steps? Like, what do places like banks use? What should, like, our health records be encrypted as? Or is this just, like, the standard and then you just, like, get fancier, like, encoding Oh, yeah, yeah. So banks do not have better encryption than everyone else oh no (laughs) that's a bad sentence well not really it in fact i think it's kind of good because that means everyone has like is just as secure as a bank the current kind of encryption methods that we have are actually really good and it's not necessarily the encryption part that secures your money it's the the other parts like the trust between two parties um that the trust 
between like you and your browser and your bank's servers and the trust between other like financial entities like that's the stuff that keeps the world running because money is fake and imagined (laughs) so like that's nothing to worry about everything is like encryption is just a layer of security it's just because something is encrypted doesn't mean it's secure so if i send you like this jumbled up message and it's nice and secure but i accidentally address it to the wrong person then it's not secure anymore is it Mm. yeah but it's still encrypted like it's still jumbled up would it be stuff like if you have a shitty browser Mm -hmm. that's like leaky when you type in your password yeah yeah exactly so whenever we open up our browser we trust that the browser is doing what it should be doing and not doing what it shouldn't be doing but if you i don't know download some kind of dodgy browser then it could be listening to everything you type in um it could absolutely 100 percent do that there's nothing stopping them from doing that. And the only reason we trust browsers like Chrome and Firefox is because they have um, really good reputations. And especially with Firefox, the code is open source. So everyone can go and look through the code that it's running off and verify that it's doing what it should be. Yeah, encryption is good, but it's it's only a very thin slice of the whole kind of security picture. Okay. It's too hot. I know, it's so hot. (laughs) How are you going? I'm just going to take like a hard left and be like, global warming is ruining our lives. Oh my gosh. Can we start talking about global warming? We can absolutely start talking about global warming. I just had like, I wanted to know more about cryptography because I'm working with a guy whose background is in internet security and I felt like I would annoy him if I asked him all these questions. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like... Serena, guess what? <laughs> You're the friend I annoy with my terrible questions. They're great questions. Um, oh God, yes, please, let's talk about global warming. Okay, so can we talk about how Australia burns a lot of coal? Yes. And how that's just ridiculous. I was listening to one of my friends give a practice talk. So she's going to RubyConf, which is this um, conference in I think Melbourne or Sydney, one of those. And she's giving a talk about climate change and how IT workers can, you know, do our best to alleviate the climate change because we're past the point of no return. The planet is Mm. going to be very uncomfortable. Species are going to go extinct. We're, you know, scientists have been warning us for like 40 years and we've been like, la, 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 la. So... That's a thing. Um, And the only thing we can do now is just do our best to, you know, not die. So she gave us some measurements of how much particulate matter is, greenhouse gases are emitted into the air per kilowatt hour of electricity used. Um, And I think in New Zealand, it's something around about, and this depends on like the generation and time of day and stuff. But in New Zealand, it's the figure is around about like 300 to 400 grams per kilowatt hour. Which is a lot if you think about like a lump in your hands of gas, and that's oh, that's a lot. Anyway, in Australia, um, that number is more like seven hundred grams per kilowatt hour. Australia. Yeah, her advice was like if you're running AWS, if you're running like servers on the cloud, don't put them in Australia. Yeah, yeah. and stuff like um, one of the biggest things for me saving power 
like particularly over the summer is like I actually looked up AMO which is the Australian Energy something something and they do like a live energy supply which I was looking up the other day because we had like a 43 degree day or something Oh my god. 40, 46 degree day. Sorry. 46. It was very hot. <laughs> and AMO has like this cool little energy life thing where you can see where your actually that's the name of their podcast. I'm sorry. Um, but they have like some kind of dashboard where you can see where your electricity is coming from. And it's mm. sort of like they manage the balancing of electricity across the states because every state has its own like sort of demand and price and everything. Mm. And within states, they manage where that electricity comes from. And Australian, I don't know how New Zealand electricity companies work, but in Australia, everyone sort of bids a certain amount of what they reckon energy should cost. Yep. And this happens on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And whoever's last in to make up the energy that's required can essentially set the price of the electricity. Um, this is why, for example, like uh, electricity often costs a lot in South Australia is because renewables make up most of it, but the last person to bid is gas. Right. And so gas charges a lot. <laughs> so that's really frustrating. But I was looking this up on this very hot day where I was trying not to put on the air con because there were warnings of like rolling blackouts if everyone did that. Yeah. And they'd like turned off power to like Essendon earlier in the day. So it's just like, no, nah, okay, let's just lie very still and wait for this to pass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so while this, I looked this up on my phone and it was just kind of like, holy shit, most of our power still comes from coal. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Victoria is known as like this cool progressive state where like we love marriage equality and everyone's a hippie Mm. but like honestly that's like two suburbs in Melbourne right (laughs) like we have these huge huge coal factories and people people excuse it because like I think there's some aluminium smelters in Australia and they're all like oh the aluminium smelters need all this energy at like this regular basis that's for everyone and coal is the best way to handle that and it's like you know what the best way to handle it is? Effective large batteries. Yeah. Unless you're living in Tasmania, your power consumption is mostly coming from coal in Australia. God, it's just... It's so sad. It's horrifying. Yeah. And it's like, in New Zealand, um, if you're in the South Island, you're pretty good. Um, that's... Hydro mostly, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty much all hydro. Um, in the North Island, we import power from the South Island. Um, so what will happen is usually if there's a spike, we'll have to make that up with with usually gas, um, sometimes geothermal, although geothermal is actually surprisingly, even though it's renewable, really bad for carbon emissions. And uh, and sometimes a bit of coal as well. Well, and that's... That's another way, right, in New Zealand that global warming is going to totally bone us mm. is because it's predicted, um, I think, to have, like, less snowfall, obviously, but also less rainfall in yeah. the areas in New Zealand where the hydro lakes are. So it's just like, yep, cool. Yeah, so last year, oh, was it the year before last year or la- last year, there was a dry winter where there was very, very little snowfall for our hydro lakes and our powers just went wild. Um, at home, we're with Flick Electric, which is the electricity company that sells you the spot price. So we get the spot price plus a little bit for a flick. Our power um, price changes every 30 minutes, depending on how under stress the grid is and our energy supply for that day and, you know, a myriad of other factors. And during the dry winter, it was really, really bad. I can't even remember. I just remember it was extremely expensive because there was just no water in our lakes. Um, yeah 
And there were there were brownouts, I think, that year. There were. I I get my part from Power Shop, which I really like because I can basically like request to have green energy. Yeah. So like I pay a little bit more, but I know that like. Well, theoretically, I know. You know mm. Companies do whatever behind closed doors. But, you know, theoretically, I know that I'm getting it from green energy, like, wherever possible. Oh, yeah. do they actually give you it from... Because you'd have to import that from Tasmania, that energy. Um, We produce... I'm looking at the... I sent you the AMO data dashboard. Oh. We produce, like, a good amount of, like, wind and other in Vic. Um, and that's not counting... I don't think this dashboard that I sent you um, counts individual solar panels Mm. so south australia does a lot of renewables as well and that like they have a really good um like solar panel on houses kind of policy Mm. um and i think they've got some wind as well i suspect in victoria we'll have wind somewhere (laughs) Um. oh we've got um we've got hydro in wind is very little of that i just i just saw a graph of it last night and i was just shocked i know that there are renewables around australia and I know that, like, you know, because people keep talking about them. Oh, it's awesome, yeah. But then I saw, like, the the scale of coal compared to everything else, and it was, like, more than 50% coal. Yeah, so that's the other thing that you have in the North Island, is um, the wind farms in the Manawatu. Yeah. That everyone cracked the shits about when they first went up. They were like, <laughs> oh, no, they'll ruin my view. There's a number of wind farms in Australia, mm. which is, I think, partly why there's been this, like, uh, huge pushback against it, where it's, like, wind turbine syndrome, which is not true. Mm. But also, it just bewilders me that Australia doesn't use more solar. Like, it's so sunny here all of the time. <laughs> yeah, and solar is getting so much cheaper. Yeah, and more efficient. Yeah, it's so good. Um, something else that I learned last night from listening to Marin's talk was that um, offsets are surprisingly cheap. So carbon offsets are things that you can buy, which basically says I'm going to donate some money to usually forestry projects in developing nations. So I didn't know that you could do that. I, I just didn't know because I would skip through all of the, you know, add-ons and the hotel and the insurance and the car that they sell you. But yeah, it's it's buried in there. So FYI. Just do that. Apparently it's like four dollars or something. It's really good. If always and I mean like this is harking back to our last episode, but like it always feels a little bit like I don't quite trust the company to actually go through with it. Yeah, there are some dodgy offsets. Yeah. It's also like it's a little bit like putting a pressure on the consumer. It is. To do things when the problem is maybe the fact that coal stations still exist. Yeah. You know? Like and I mean like I think the sort of individual choice to buy from and support green energy places is really good and giving money towards forestries is really good. But also mm. what if we close the coal stations? Yes. Yeah. What if we stop drilling for oil? Oh, the dream. Yeah. I live in in Taranaki. Well, I mean I I'm currently in Taranaki right now. And th- this is a region that lives on oil. Like yeah. that is the main economy here. Oil and gas. Yeah. And the the really tricky thing is, I guess as a government, how do we transition off of that? Because literally, like, there will be no more money if if we just shut it down. But also, there won't be any more humans if we don't shut it down. So so I think this happened quite recently in um, the Latrobe Valley in Victoria. Yeah. Where they closed a coal power station. So they closed a Hazelwood power station. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but the council had like this really good change where they were like, okay, like let's help you get new jobs. Let's help you like mm. move forward. And like a lot of the people who used to work at the coal station then stayed employed to like decommission the plant safely. Mm. So they had like a length of job there as well. But yeah, there's been this really big move towards more like renewables. There's been people like, you know, pulling together. I mean, this is very much a country thing. Like I don't see anything like this ever happening in the big city, but mm. all New Zealand is country. <laughs> but like the Latrobe Valley Authority has been really big and just sort of being like, okay, this is shut down. And like it wasn't a, um, I don't think it was a government problem. I think it was the owner who was just like, it's too expensive. Like I'm just going to get out sort of working together to be like okay what do we do next how do we change things how do we support like local businesses where do we go from here essentially like mm. how do we you know how do we pivot to video right like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like it's not great but equally the Latrobe Valley wasn't great beforehand like it had one of the highest unemployment rates in Victoria right so it's kind of like it's actually improving right mm. like um Morwell's unemployment rate has decreased from 21% in December 2016 to 15.6% in December 2017. Well, this is what I like about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal over in the US, is reframing the climate action as a jobs deal, as a jobs guarantee, as a, an economic stimuli package. Reframing it from, hey, we need to shut down all these things, to hey, we're going to create a lot of new jobs because we have this huge global problem to deal with and we need to employ people to deal with it. And I think mm. that's a really helpful and good reframing. Yeah. So I've just, I've just found what, they're, um, what they sort of want to do in the absence of the coal plant mm. in the Latrobe Valley, and I just wanted to make sure it was right before I said anything. Mm -hmm. um, they're talking about creating a waste-to-energy plant Ooh, okay. Which is supported by like Australian paper, and I think I think the guy who's talking about it is like a councillor, mm -hmm. and he's just like in Finland they've turned the waste energy plant into a hundred thousand jobs in ten years. Like this is what we want to do, and it's just like that's incredible. Like that's absolutely the right attitude to have towards it. And there was such a risk that it could go the other way and become people like really pushing back against you know climate change but people have sort of like taken a step back and gone like shit renewables are really important mm. we have the opportunity to be a relatively early mover in changing a coal plant into a renewable energy plant mm. and like that's going to be valuable right like having the expertise and the ability to do that because there are so many coal plants in the world that cannot just like cannot continue to be coal plants mm -hmm. <laughs> either because we're going to run out of coal or because we're actually going to start making the world a better, less hot place. Hotter, but, like, we'll survive hot. I'm just realising, well, I've realised, but the fact that our choice now is not between global warming or not global warming, our choice now is between global warming or death. Yeah. And, I mean, to an extent, I suspect that's always been our choice. Yeah. Like, with every passing year, it gets more, more pertinent, right? Yeah. I think, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but, like, my, my dad's an environmental town planner. Mm. And so I have literally my entire life been hearing about global warming and sea level rise and climate change. Yeah. And how that's going to change our lives fundamentally. And, like, the, fan, the house my parents own is on high land. Mm -hmm. Like, because <laughs> it's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I've been exposed to this 
pretty much my entire life. Mm. And it's always seemed bizarre and nonsensical to me that no one has really recognized it. But I mean, like, that's the power of lobby groups, right? Right. Like, like I remember being <laughs> at primary school and reading a book in the library about pollution, greenhouse gases, and global warming. And that book would have been published like 10 years before I was born. So it's not a secret. It's not a secret. Like, people know about it. And somehow we as a collective species have just sat on our asses and put our fingers in our ears. It, it's incredibly sad and depressing. Have you read um, Evelyn's book? No. Okay, Evelyn Blackwell is a mutual friend of ours from Otago University, and she wrote a short novel essentially about global warming and about the world 10-ish years from now, although it feels like it's getting closer with, with every year. When I first read her book, and I would encourage you to, to read her book, it's called Crossed. Um, it's on Amazon. You, you can get a Kindle version for pretty cheap. Please go out and read it. It's a great story. It's a really harrowing story. And when I first read it, I thought, oh, I know global warming's a thing, but this seems a bit far-fetched. And this was maybe four or five years ago that I read it, that she wrote it. And with every passing year, every passing year, I think back on her book and I think about how much more real it becomes. It's a good book. Read it. Do it. Yeah. No, I was talking to a friend the other day and she was sort of saying, this feels like the first chapter in a dystopian novel. Yeah. And I mean, it felt like that five years ago. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think the problem is it's affecting like people who have always seen themselves as protected now. Mm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they're sort of seeing it like, wow. oh my God, like we're living in a dystopia. And it's like, oh, some of us were always living in a dystopia, yeah. <laughs> but thanks for joining the party, I guess. Did you know that women experience sexism? Oh my god. I, a man, had no idea. Oh my god. I had the worst conversation with a guy who's no longer a friend of mine. We had a conversation where he got kind of upset and he yelled. And I very calmly was like, I find yelling from men to be extremely stressful. And I would appreciate if you didn't do it again. Mm. I understand that you're emotional. Mm. But this is just a very common impact that anger expressed in this kind of way can have on people around you and I was real proud of that I was like you know what my psych would high five me about that like (laughs) I'm trying to live my life like so that my psych would be proud of me which I think (laughs) is the best approach I've had to things in a while (laughs) and then like earlier this week like we had another conversation and he yelled at me again and I just hung up I was like nope nope (laughs) nope (laughs) we've had this conversation you, like, you know what you're doing. And, like, to a large extent, like, that's the thought I keep having when I see people behaving badly and then claiming ignorance. It's like, I don't think we live in a world where you get to claim that anymore. No. There are some things where if you've been in a really restricted friend group for a lot of your time, I will kind of, like, just sit someone down and be like, hey, you might not know this, but that's, mm. like, really harmful. Like, please don't use that language. Don't act like that. Do you want more information? Like, life is about learning and growing. Peace out. Yeah. But honestly, like, I just, I don't have time for people who use slurs. I don't have time for people who yell at me more than once, right? Like, and... And it's not your job to deal with that. 
Yeah. And it's like, I'm more than willing to let it happen once, right? Like, I've had really stressful days where I've yelled at friends and I haven't meant to mm. because, like, I was just totally wrung out. And it's like, if it happens once, that's fine. If it happens mm. again, like, a couple of days after I've literally told you about the effect this has on people around you, like, fuck off. Yeah. <sighs> I'm really proud of you for doing, like, talking to him in such a reasoned manner the first time. Yeah, it's it's all attributable to my site. Mm, I don't because she makes me be nice a lot. <laughs> that's so nice. Well, it's like even when I was talking about going home and being stressed about it, mm. it to her, she was like, "You can see how the behavior that you're stressed about has its origins in love, and you can understand that." I'm like, "Yeah, but but I don't I don't want a Sonia. I'm the baby." <laughs> and she's like. No, you're not. You're 26. Get it together. <laughs> you can sit down and be calm and explain things. I'm like, okay. Hmm. So <laughs> that's what I try and do now. Um, nice. And it's like weird, but also really healthy. Hmm. It's stuff like I've gotten really good at identifying the cause of my feelings. Mm-hmm. And that's not a common thing to be good at. No, that's a very difficult thing to be good at. I could kind of do it before I started seeing my psych. Mm. And then I got a lot better at it while seeing her. And that's, like, one of the reasons where I'm just, like, even if, like, you think you're totally mentally healthy, like, on the ball, killing it, go see a psych, like, once a year. (laughs) Yeah. Because genuinely – she made me healthier, but she also made me genuinely a better person. Mm. Yeah. Everyone should be in therapy. That that old tagline. But honestly, like, your GP should offer – they should have access to counselling services. And I know in New Zealand, if you're 23 or under, you get counselling for free. It's it's so worth it. And I've been, I've been telling all of my friends about, like, counselling or therapy or psych or whatever people call it. And just how helpful it is, like, even if you think you're all good. Because it's, it's surprising how... And I was surprised by this um, when I saw a counsellor. It's surprising how little we all are in touch with our feelings and our emotions because uh, I guess I don't know maybe the culture around us just tells us to like ignore them they're just feelings I think we're good at feeling feelings and understanding the effects of that but not so much like the other way like we can go yeah. from feeling forwards but we can't go from feeling backwards <laughs> yeah yeah like we can feel stuff and then act off of those feelings but it's I don't know. It wasn't until the last couple of years that I really started to understand the patterns in my thinking and in my feelings and how they were affecting each other and the patterns in like what would trigger certain feelings and what would trigger certain thinking patterns. And that was surprisingly hard work to really step back from the emotions that I'd be feeling at any given time and to kind of approach it with curiosity instead of trying to protect myself from my own feelings because oftentimes like if I feel overwhelmed if I feel extremely depressed if I feel extremely anxious I'll just shut down and just wait it out and that would be like that would be my strategy just sit there stay still and wait till it all blows over um which is not a great strategy uh, surprisingly enough and what has been surprising to me because I'm I've never really been someone that who's been that in touch with their own feelings is to 
take a step back in your mind, be okay with the fact that you're feeling however you're feeling, and really approach it from a, a place of curiosity to be like, why am I feeling this way? Uh, and to not be ashamed of any answers that might come up and just to be like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And just to note it. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a journey. Everyone should be in therapy. Go see a counsellor. It's good for you. Yeah. And, like, don't be worried if, like, you don't click with the first counsellor you see. Like, my psych is the first one I've really clicked with. Mm -hmm. And I've seen so many psychs and counsellors. I have very bad mental health. You're working on it, and that's the that's the most important part, <laughs> is that we all work on it. We all work on our own mental health. Oh, mm-hmm. God. I read another article, but I didn't realise it was by that guy, Johan Hari, or Johan Hari, or Oh, yeah, the is. Sapiens guy. No. No? No. The guy who wrote a book about how we're diagnosing and doing depression all wrong. Oh, no, I don't know that guy. Yeah, no, he's he's the worst. He's all like, depression is all environmental. You don't need medication. Have some fruit and go outside. Um, I mean, fruit and outside are good and all. <laughs> yeah, but also, like, medication. <laughs> it's, oh, oh, it's my problem with Bandersnatch as well. There's yeah. so many of this, like, pop culture media bullshit where they're like, what if psychiatric medication is bad? And it's like, it's not bad. Like, it's very, very good. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's... If it is good for you, yeah. then it is fantastic. If you are not sure about the medication you are taking, talk to your doctor. Like, It's a tool like anything else. Like, are hammers bad? Yeah, like, if you don't like the side effects, have a discussion about it. Like, I get pretty much nausea I could set my clock by because of my medication. Like, a sudden bout of nausea about two hours after I take my medication. And that is because serotonin in your stomach makes you nauseous. Huh. And it's like... That is not as bad as trying to kill myself. Yes. So. <laughs> Take the nausea. <laughs> it's a tolerable side effect. Yes. <laughs> but then some side effects are intolerable. Like when I was taking Prozac, I just couldn't sleep the day I took it. Oh, yeah. It's just like that is not a tolerable side effect because that makes you more crazy. <sighs> mm. And there's like this bit in Bandersnatch where it's like for him to see the real world, he has to flush his medication down the toilet. And I'm like, cool, cool, cool. I hate this. Yeah. I remember something similar. Was it in Girl Interrupted or? I didn't see Girl Interrupted. Um, it probably wasn't. It was in some other kind of movie about mental health where it's like the medication was. The story, uh, the gist of it was that like the medication was holding this person back or something. And it was just like, oh man, that's. That's bad. That's real unhealthy. It's a bad message. The depressed genius narrative is so strong still. Yeah. It's just like, oh, Vincent van Gogh was like so good at art because he was depressed. It's like, yeah, he ate yellow paint and died. He cut his own ear off. Like, That's that not didn't, cool. That didn't make him good at painting. Like, yeah. <sighs> yeah. I feel that very strongly within the arts communities, like with writing, with fine arts, the whole narrative of like the the depressed genius and it's like if you're so depressed that you can't participate in your craft are you that good you're not good you're not better because you're depressed in fact it's holding you back you'd be yeah oh it breaks my heart 
Well, and like it's it's a narrative that stopped me from trying medication for ages mm. because like there was this idea that like oh medication would change you and it changes your brain and it changes your personality and it's so terrible and it's like mm. there's all these kind of horror stories out there and people I think the way a lot of people I've known like so a lot of people with medical science backgrounds have talked about like their antidepressants has often been in things like oh it just makes me feel flat mm. and it's like yes but. But what's your comparative? Like, your comparative isn't feeling happy, is it? Your comparative is being deeply depressed and unable to get out of bed. Mm. So in that window, right, like, feeling flat is the good end. Mm. But when you only hear the part of that story that is like, oh, it makes me feel flat, in your head you're like, so I shouldn't try medication because then I would feel flat. And I don't want to feel flat. Mm. Because, like, that scene is, like, an incredibly bad thing. Like, this idea that like oh god i think i heard something like einstein was depressed and alan turing was really depressed which yeah he was depressed because he was persecuted by his government because he was gay right Mm. like fair enough and like einstein lived during the second world war like legit to be depressed but also antidepressants make you not depressed if they work for you like and they work for me and you know, my time on Prozac was a hellish nightmare of being awake forever. And then literally as soon as I got on sertraline, like, a month later, it was just like, shit, I I don't want to die all the time. Yes. Shit, this is really good. Yeah. Like, why did no one tell me about this? <laughs> <laughs> because, like, and, you know, I got it from my parents as well. Like, after I told them I'd started on antidepressants, they cut out an article from the listener and mailed it to me about how, like, bananas had selenium in them and maybe like or whatever they have in them Mm. they've got a lot of vitamins bananas are great and how like maybe actually depression is like a vitamin imbalance and a mineral imbalance and i was like cool Mm. interesting i no longer want to die every day so like i'm gonna take the sertraline just (laughs) oh anyway Uh, sorry no a classic sophia rant (laughs) that's what we're here for that's the good stuff Oh, God. I'm just... (laughs) I'm so mad that, like, not only have, like, these ideas of depression and genius and the overprescription of psychiatric medications, like, not only have those ideas, like, personally hurt me and my ability to not be depressed, but, like, they're continuing to exist and they're continuing to harm people. Mm. Like, it breaks my heart how difficult it is to seek help and the fact that there are these conversations that are like well you know you suffer for your art or doing a phd right like no one enjoys a phd and it's just like yeah but no one should be suicidally depressed no one should be so anxious that that their life is falling apart right like no one should develop compulsions during their phd but it's kind of accepted as part of the journey and studies show that something like 50% of people who do a PhD develop depression or anxiety during that time, right? Like, that's not including people who had it beforehand. <laughs> yeah. And we just, we're just kind of okay with that, right? Like, it's, it's part of the path. It's part of the process. Mm. And it makes me so mad. Yeah, you should be. I'm mad. Mm-hmm. Hey, thanks for listening to Things of Interest. This episode we've talked about cryptography, global warming, mental health, and the swiftly deteriorating political situation in, um, the world. Cool. Uh, 
Hmm. We're probably living in the first chapter of dystopian novel at this stage, but at least now you understand ciphers, so when you join the revolution and have to support, you know, whatever our equivalent of the Underground Railroad is, you can pass encoded messages to your family and friends. If you enjoy this episode, um, please do tell a friend. Uh, and, I don't know, give us some likes and some stars and some reviews on the iTunes or wherever you get yeah. your podcasts. We're on social media. We're on Twitter at Casting Interest. We're on Facebook as Things of Interest. And you can always email us um, at castinginterest at gmail.com. I've been Sophia Friends. And I'm Serena Chen. And as always, stay interesting. Oh my god, it's so hot. <laughs>